you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Tales from the Vault is a production of the NFL in partnership with iHeartRadio. Welcome to NFL Films Tales from the Vault. I'm your host, Hall of Fame journalist Andrea Kramer. I actually started my TV career at NFL Films, and when you work there, you learn that one of Steve Sable's favorite sayings was, and I quote, Tell me a fact and I'll learn. Tell me a truth and I'll believe. But tell me a story and it will live in my heart forever. So I'd like to start off by telling you a little story about my career at NFL Films. I was this young producer and it's a Saturday night and I went into the vault. And in those days, the vault consisted of cans of film. So I got up on a ladder to probably reach for the 1960 championship game and I'm teetering on this ladder and all I'm thinking of is, oh my gosh, don't let me fall off the ladder and be found as roadkill on a Monday morning by somebody who's coming in here. But you know what? On a Saturday night at 10 p.m., there was only one other light on in the building and that light was my mentor and boss, Steve Sable. So it is very special to me that I get to go back into that vault to bring you some of the greatest interviews between Steve Sable and some of the greatest figures in NFL history. Today, we head back to 1989 for part two of Steve's fascinating conversation with the late owner of the Raiders, Al Davis. In part one of this interview, and, and folks, if you haven't heard it, I would strongly suggest you go back and listen to it. We heard Steve and Al talk mostly about Al Davis's favorite subject, Raiders football. It was truly a clinic in team building, what culture really means, coaching, and leadership. But 
Today's conversation starts on a personal level, as Steve and Al get into Davis's childhood and his dreams of becoming an owner of an NFL team one day. But it's much more than that. For a man who was described as cunning and devious, and actually thought those were pretty good compliments, you are about to hear a side of Al Davis you might never have imagined existed. No hyperbole here. What you're going to hear when he talks about his wife, Carol, and the medical travails that she went through is absolutely extraordinary. The detail with which he describes what he went through, what she went through, and how he was there, how he left football for really the first time in his life for something bigger is absolutely amongst the most meaningful things you will hear on this podcast. So now, let's go to the vault for part two of Steve Sable and Al Davis. I want to go back to growing up right from the beginning. That's what you wanted. I mean, because that's such a great story. I mean, how many people, number one, have the dream and how many other, how many people that have a dream get to accomplish it the way you have? So that's makes it very unique right from the beginning. But what about your, your childhood when you were growing up? I mean, you have so many strong feelings and so many opinions. Was that shaped when you were a kid, and how was it? I mean, what was your childhood like to to to, to cultivate these the, the, this emotion and the, uh, the theories that you? That you well, I, I came to uh, Brooklyn, New York, from Massachusetts when I was about five years old, and uh, th there's no question. Uh, growing up there, being on the streets, led me to meet many diverse people and grow up amongst them and. Uh, I think that when I look back, I always led. I always loved sports. Uh, we didn't have television in the uh, mid-30s and early 40s, although my family was one of the first to get it in the early 40s. And uh, uh, I can vividly remember the seven or eight newspapers that were in New York City. I used to uh, devour them, read them every day, read about the Yankees, read about the Dodgers. Uh, pro football was just a... Uh, in its infancy, it was just starting to grow. But I love football, and I love basketball and baseball, quite frankly, I loved them all. And I just devoured everything about them and started to shape and watch different people and uh, the creativity and watch players and started to form in my mind uh, certain, uh, bad or good, certain prejudices about players. Uh, uh, and. To, to, to whoever's credit it is, my parents, thank God, always gave me the privilege of going out and free expression, uh, allowing me to do what I wanted to do, living in the park, living in your high school athletic fields, and just just doing it day and night, and uh, just living it. And, and it became a way of life to me. It wasn't just a, a, a part of my life, it was a way of life, and I just love it. When kids used to choose up when you were little, were you one of the first chosen or the last? Well, I'd like to think I was one of the guys choosing. <laughs> uh, picking. I, I, <laughs> no, uh, I, I, I was one of the guys choosing. I was an organizer. I could organize. I, I, could, I could lead. When it, when it came to that, I could lead. And, uh, uh, you know, I've always kept in contact. Even, even from my public school with some of my classmates. And uh, just recently, uh, one of the girls I went to public school with became the first woman publisher of a major publishing concern. And uh, we would renew old friendships and she would talk to the girls here and uh, she would tell them, even when I was a 
a kid. I was the one who led. And then junior high school, then high school, you know, my high school, Erasmus Hall, uh, we had a big reunion here, about 1,200 people. And to Erasmus's credit, some of the greatest people in America today, especially in sports, came from Erasmus, Erasmus Hall High School. We had six at one time uh, doing outstanding things in professional sports uh, in, in the 70s and the 80s. And uh, my high school teammate, that was uh, something uh, that, that uh, kind of destroyed me for a while because life and death are, are so big with me, health, and he died. On the mound, he was the pitching coach of the Dodgers. Uh, we played together, uh, Don McMahon, the great relief pitcher, and it was just uh, two years ago that he died on the mound as a pitching coach for the Dodgers. And those are the things that stop and, and make you think and uh, uh, realize that there is another part of life other than just football and winning, and that's life or death and sickness. And, and maybe, maybe that's the only place I, I feel that I haven't been able to contribute enough. I've always liked to think that I could dominate my environment, and I'm trying. And, and that's something I like to try and dominate. I like to try and contribute to because I'm not talking from a doctor's standpoint. I'm not talking from a, a nurse's standpoint. And by the way, my experience with nurses are just super. They, they're, they're, they're unheralded. Uh, they should be standing out winning uh, nurse of the year this kind of, you know, player of the year. They should be getting bonuses for making it to Hawaii, to the Pro Bowl. But in, in, in any event, I, I, I think that uh, so many sick people and families who have sick people need help as far as management of how you're going to handle the sickness, crisis management of sickness. It would just be just be great. But that, that's getting away from what we're well, talking it about. It sort of leads into what we wanted to talk about with your, with your experience with Carol and how did that if you could go over that about what happened and then how you had to cope with it and also the, the feelings that were going on inside you when, when she was in the hospital. Yeah, you mean my wife, Carol. Yeah, when we got married, uh, joking, I used to tell her, listen, the only thing that's ever going to take me away from football is life or death. I'm just telling you that. And I guess she decided to put me to the test because in 1979, it was October, we were getting ready to leave on a Friday to play the Jets in New York. And a Thursday night, uh, she went into a uh, coma. She was in a coma 14 days. Every uh, top doctor and neurologist that I had met told me that uh, she would be a vegetable and uh, maybe never even live. And if she did, as I say, be a vegetable. And, uh, you know, we had all the plugs in her and all of that. And they were talking about pulling plugs and things like that. And, uh, no big deal, because I would do this for any friend. I think it's uh, based on faith, love, and whatever else you want to call it. Uh, I gave up football, moved into the hospital. They let me, and I moved in on the same floor with her and fought that thing through. And uh, there was no way that I was just going to let her lie there. I was talking to people in Switzerland. Anywhere in the world that I could get help with something that might be different, I was going to try it. I was just not going to accept that this was a fact. And uh, I would try different doctors, different neurologists, and they were all super. They were all trying to help me and comfort me. I'll never forget one said to me, uh, I had seen her one night about after the eighth day in the middle of the night. I, I thought I had contact with her. We all think these things, I guess, when, 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 when they're under coma. And I told him about it, and he said to me, Al, we all see things that we want to see at this type of period. And I said, no, no, I saw it. 
and 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 he he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't accept it, and he thought I was kind of you know making up things, which is which is understandable. But anyhow, thank God, after about 14 days, uh, she awakened, and after a total rehabilitation, it took about six months to a year. We had a teacher how to eat again, how to put her socks on, how to do all those things. Uh, uh, she needed uh, therapy work. She needed uh, memory work. But uh, thank God today she's she's perfect. I think you can hear the intensity in Al Davis's voice, but you should see his face. Just recalling this, the look on his face is just, it's full of pain. Because for those of us who knew Al Davis, even tangentially, you understood that this man had only one fear in life, the one thing he couldn't control, and that was death. So a little bit more background on the story about Al's wife, Carol. In October of 1979, she suffered a massive heart attack, a subsequent stroke, and spent 23 days in a coma on a ventilator in an Oakland hospital, regaining consciousness only occasionally. By her side all that time, Occupying the next bed was her husband, who left the Oakland Raiders during that entire ordeal and talked into his wife's ear for hours on end, encouraging her even though she couldn't respond. And then one day, she woke up. This might have been Davis's greatest coaching job ever. To quote Carol Davis's doctor, it's a miracle, no question about it. I've never seen anyone that sick make such a recovery. Well, you know what? Not anyone had Al Davis by their side. What did you do? You went in there. I mean, what, did, what, what was exactly what you were doing at, your be at her bedside? And what were you saying and, and your motivation behind that? Well, well, I want to say first that the doctors, the nurses, that little hospital, Merritt Hospital, Oakland, California, were just fantastic. I'll never forget them. And uh, from time to time, I'm in contact with them because they actually helped save her life. And uh, uh, it was my objective after a period of days when the feeling was that there was no hope, that this was a fait accompli, that I could not leave her. She was my friend, my wife. I could not leave her lying there and accept that. I just, just couldn't believe it, as little I knew about medicine. So I was determined to try and dominate that situation, at least from the management of it, procuring all the information I could from all over the world. And of course, I have more means than other people, so I can do these things. And, I'm, and I must admit another thing, that I had the support of the entire country, uh, certainly pro football, the media, the television people. I can remember uh, games on in her room while she was in a coma. The game was on and they would be talking about her. And I would try to talk to her and tell her, baby, they're talking about you now, you gotta get up. And every night would spend hours with her talking to her with the hope that maybe I could do something with the idea that you'll leave no stone unturned. And uh, uh, you know, God was good to us and uh, brought her back and uh, uh, gave her back, and now she's doing great. And now it's our turn from time to time to try and make a contribution to the lives of others, or at least give them the hope that coma is not over at the end of 10 days or 15 even, that people do wake up, they do live a normal life, or at least uh, try everything possible to do it. I don't think anything or anyone else would have taken Al Davis away from football. 
but it illustrates the love and loyalty he had for his wife, two qualities that are actually hallmarks of Davis's life. When Davis passed away in 2011, controlling interest of the Raiders passed to his wife, Carol, and son, Mark. Carol still lives in California, but she commutes to Las Vegas to attend games and is still hailed as the first lady of Raiders football. She even lit the ceremonial Al Davis torch prior to the Raiders' first home game in Las Vegas. And Mark Davis told me it was one of the most meaningful events of his life. Mother and son remain committed to, as Al Davis loved to call it, the greatness of the Raiders. And in fact, they were on hand at last year's Hall of Fame induction ceremony as Tom Flory's presenters. When we come back, Al and Steve get into Davis's ability to see into the future. Stay tuned. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower, 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA Sixth Man of the Year, elite bucket getter. Let's please welcome Jamal Crawford to Point Game. King of the Court one-on-one tournament. If they had it back in your prime, do you think he could have took it all? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I could have took it all. But I think I would have shocked a lot of people. I think Kobe and everybody in their prime, Kobe would win a one-on-one contest. Yeah, I, yeah, because you got to think, Love he's going to guard. He don't care about guarding. He's going to guard. He's going to exactly. guard. Like, you see him in the Olympics, exactly. he's going to guard. And then on I'm top of that. like that, see that? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Cassell to Point Game. I remember you came out from crying tears. <laughs> crying tears. I mean, he was in a culture shock. And then I, his, he's going to withdraw us about winning. Remember what so. I told you? I said, I said, OG, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college because it ain't Nick? <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colin Coward from The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big, small, indoor, outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled pros to get the job done well. Listen, I've got a couple of things in a bathroom in my house. Gotta get it fixed. I don't have time, and I'm not good at it. Angie is. In just a few taps in the Angie app or clicks on the site. You can have Angie tackle your home service project start to finish. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects really easy. Renters, you can use Angie too for moving, installations, or cleaning. Angie can even help with extremely specific projects. Just tell them what you need, and Angie will find the right solution for you. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com, or download the app today. Welcome back to NFL Films, Tales from the Vault. As we return to football talk, this upcoming discussion showcases Al Davis, the coach, general manager, tactician. 
Simply, there have been so few owners who have the pedigree and knowledge base to wax poetic on strategy and personnel. But when not caring for his wife, Al Davis ate, slept, and breathed football. And he was steadfast in his beliefs about how to build a winner. And it started with being proactive, not reactive. One thing that, that keeps coming up about people that talk about you is your ability to perceive the future, to, to foretell either a player's potential or, 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 a, or a, a developing trend in the game. And what could you elaborate that? What's that called? And could you could you explain that? Could you, is there an example that you can give of something that you've had this that you, you saw it and then it actually a specific example of it? That sounds pretty good. Keep talking. <laughs> no, uh, uh, I guess I've always referred to it as Gestalt. It's a German word. It means the ability to perceive into the future something that could happen or could develop before it really does. It's uh, an ability great statesmen have. They uh, see a situation, builders, they see the need for parks or they see the need for certain type housing long before there is a need for it. And uh, we have been able through the years to take football players and move them into other positions where they become great players, whereas they might not have been great at the positions they were playing. Uh, the ability to perceive in the future uh, something that uh, should happen and could happen and, and plan for it. And uh, so I, I, I don't know where you're headed directly, but I think this organization has always been uh, positive and before it happens thinkers as, as to what's going to happen and, and being ready for it and developing players along those lines. Is there a specific example of a player that you put really is uh, the, the best example of all of that, the taking a guy from one position and moving him to another? And what did you see in that guy that made you want to shift him to the other position? Well, you know, there are so many examples, and I say that with humility here with the Raiders, but I guess the first uh, two great ones were... Uh, taking Billy Cannon, who was the Heisman Trophy winner from LSU, great player, 1960 first-round draft choice of the National Football League and the American Football League. And, and uh, uh, Billy played for the Oilers. We traded for him, and we moved him from halfback to tight end. And I felt that that was the first, other than maybe the fellow who played for the Eagles, Retzlaff, tight end of his time, who had the speed to go deep, who could put the pressure on the defense deep, and uh, he was very quick, he was a very good blocker, but he was a very big touchdown catcher for the Raiders. And at the same time, I took certainly uh, Todd Christensen. I like to use the expression, he gets annoyed, we took him off the street. He had been cut by two teams after being a second round draft choice of the Dallas Cowboys. He had been cut by Dallas and the Giants, and when we got him, uh, I let him fool around and full back for a while, and then called him in and said, look, I'm gonna make you a tight end. And I recounted the story of Billy Cannon to him, that I thought he could be great. I thought he could help dominate the National Football League for terms of what we wanted to do with him. And uh, uh, to his credit, uh, he had several years where he caught over 80 passes and was a great contributor to the greatness of the Raiders. But uh, we've had many players. Uh, we're one of the few teams that have taken players who played offense and turned them around and made them into defensive players. And uh, we do it often. If we think it's the thing to do, we'll do it. I'm a great believer the Raiders have in matchups that if there's a great team in our conference, 
I better know if the Raiders can match up with that team and be able to play them and handle their people man for man at skill positions, defensive line. And here was uh, Hank Stram's great Kansas City Chiefs teams starting to grow as big as we are, starting to dominate the American Football League. And their two tackles were Ernie Ladd and Buck Buchanan. And I was determined that if Buck Buchanan, who was very young, was going to play 10 years at right tackle for the Kansas City Chiefs, I better have a left guard, which was unheard of to put a guy 6'5", 6'6", at guard. But I put up short guard because I knew I had to handle Buchanan for the next 10 years. Otherwise, the Raiders were going to be in trouble. What about the other thing the Raiders are known for is the, is the troublemakers from other teams, the Alzados, the Matusaks, the Hendricks, and yet they all seem to gravitate toward the Raiders. And when they come here, every one of them to the man says, well, the reason I said, treated like a man, there's one thing, the organization is focused. Why have you been so successful with these so-called troublemakers? And you almost, you almost look for them, I mean, to bring these guys in. Why, why is that? Well, number one, they may be troublemakers, but add the next expression, they're great football players. And uh, I wasn't doing it based on love or emotion. I was doing it because I thought they were great and they could make a contribution to the Raiders. Uh, Matuzak, just a great football player, uh, just untapped, needed confidence, uh, needed a feeling that you believed in him. Alzado, uh, I don't know if Alzado was, was such uh, that he was a troublemaker, uh, was that everyone thought he was through, and he wasn't through, and uh, uh, he was a great contributor. It's a funny thing, Alzado uh, played for the Raiders in the year 82, Lyle did, and Lyle uh, Bless him, uh, originally came from Brooklyn, New York, Lawrence, Long Island, and uh, was a uh, high draft choice of the Denver Broncos. He played there for many years, played for Cleveland, and everyone thought he was through. And he only played for the Raiders in the year 82, 83, 84, and part of 85. And yet everyone thinks he's been a Raider all his life. Now, uh, uh, John Matuzak came to us in 1976 and played uh, in two Super Bowl years for us, two wins, and was a great contributor. And uh, there are so many that, that have come to us with the label of troublemaker uh, that uh, I, I think it's wrong. I think uh, that what they have to prove to us when they come here is that they can't get along with us, that we can't get along with them. Uh, we, we've had a couple through the years, but not very many. And uh, I, I'm a great believer that if you have an environment that uh, allows people some freedom in a paramilitary situation, but yet you have a common goal, unity of purpose, commitment, that, that they can do it. And I just believe in young people. I believe in people, and I believe that you can dominate your environment. You can inspire in others the will to be great. You can lead them. And uh, a hell of the, one of the first we got, because he was a troublemaker, was a guy by the name of Willie Brown. And he probably, uh, we got him in 1967, as the greatest player to ever play his position, cornerback. Uh, to get back to picking up the, 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 the renegades, the cutthroats, the, what about the, the philosophy that you've had about Because so many teams would say, see a guy like Alzado or, or, or Hendricks and say, look, I don't want the aggravation. And that you say that you can look past that. And yet when they come here, they don't seem to cause any trouble. Why is that? You got to remember one thing. You call them cutthroats <laughs> and troublemakers. I didn't. And uh, if, if they're the troublemakers of our society, I'll take them because... Uh, They've all been a part of my life, and I admit that uh, there have been problems with them. Not trouble, problems with them. 
But those problems are normal, and, and the way our culture's going, you can't expect uh, to lead 50 to 60 men every year and not have these kind of problems uh, when you get into alcohol, you get into drugs, and you get into the egos of men and the temperament and, and, and the problems that they go through in their own personal lives. And, and that all filters back to you. But this used to be a source that we could tap for great players and have an edge on other teams. But what's happened, uh, when Bill Walsh goes to San Francisco and Steve Ortmeier goes to San Diego and Kenny Hirock goes to Atlanta, all guys who grew up with us, John Robinson goes to the Rams and uh, uh, now Tom Flores is up in Seattle, you're gonna see that they're not gonna let us have this untapped area without them sticking their hand in and saying, we'll take this guy, we'll take a chance, we'll make him better. Now there has been a, a new problem that has been injected into our lives, and that's what we talked a little bit about, and that's the drug problem. Now the uh, guarantee of success there, the percentage is gonna be much less when you take some player who's been on drugs. And you have to rationalize with yourself. You have to live with yourself. Do I, do I do it? As you said, do I want that thing? Because that's a tough thing to beat. But uh, I think you can beat it. I think you have to try from time to time. You have to dominate. You owe that, uh, you owe that commitment to society to give people a chance. Because I don't think drugs are necessarily a crime in the sense that we're talking about people who kill people or rape people. Uh, these are sick people, and uh, they just can't beat it. And I don't think our government or our culture is doing enough to help them beat it. And uh, so I think from time to time, you have to reach out and try. You don't always win, because that's a tough battle, but you have to try. I find it so interesting that as tunnel-visioned as Al Davis was toward football, he also had tremendous thoughtfulness when it came to social issues whether it's the disease of addiction or the American educational system, as we heard about in part one. I believe that Al Davis would be proud that he built a sustainable culture that enables his organization to support two of its biggest stars who have openly battled drug and alcohol problems, tight end Darren Waller and defensive end Max Crosby. Both have worked to stay clean and sober and productive on the field just the way Davis would have hoped. You use the phrase paramilitary organization. What does that mean? Well, it's uh, there's strong discipline up to a point. There are rules and regulations that have to be adhered to up to a point. There's one or two voices, and it's unfortunate that well, I'm one of them, that makes the final decision, and we have to adhere to it. And it's like a military organization, only that they're all not treated alike. They're treated the way they want to be treated within the confines of the discipline and of the organizational structure that has to be adhered to. And that adherence is that our first goal is to win. We have a commitment to excellence. People have to subjugate some of their egos, some of their own great abilities for the good of the organization. I told you this, I don't believe you can continuously win Super Bowls running the halfback. And if you have a great halfback who can run the ball, if he's not going to subjugate his abilities to the good of the organization, then really 
He shouldn't be here. I told you other things uh, about what I consider paramilitary relative to a way of playing the game. I don't want to play the game, take what they give you. I don't want to play a lateral game. I want to play a vertical game, and I want to attack deep, and I want them to know we're going to attack deep, and, and uh, that's the way it is. Okay. I want to go back to the immaculate reception. Oh. What was your reaction when that happened, Al? I mean, to go back in time, and Ron Wolf was sitting next to you, I think, uh, he told me that he would during that game, and he, he talked about it. But I want to hear from you what happened. That's, that might go down as the single most famous play in the history of the National Football League. And what was your reaction? Can you just relive that or go take us through what happened after? You mean right at the particular moment? Yes. Well, it was fourth down, and Bradshaw is back to throw, and I remember distinctly to this day without seeing he was attacked in the pocket, and uh, we had what we call a spy on on the line of scrimmage who would, uh, uh, if, if Bradshaw got out of the pocket, which he was brilliant at, although he was very young then, later he became more dangerous getting out of the pocket than in it, and he got out just for a moment, and our spy was loafing a little and didn't attack him, really. But I, I remember the whole play. I remember Fuqua coming across, and I remember I was annoyed at Tatum. It was fourth down, and Jack came in to intercept and could have just knocked the ball down, and it would have been over. And uh, events started to happen so fast, the tip ball, Franco gets it, he go down the sideline, Jimmy chases him, Jimmy Warren just misses him about the eight-yard line. Uh, Bedlam breaks out, and by the way, <laughs> Uh, in reflection, you know, about uh, 15 minutes later, I thought we got taken. The word is stronger than that by everyone. And uh, we should have had that football game, but we didn't get it. But uh, to his credit, Mr. Rooney got it. He was in an elevator. He didn't even see the play. He was going down in the locker room. He told me later to congratulate this guy for having a great season. He thought they lost, which they should have. But immediately after the play, I started to look for Art McNally to issue a protest because what I called a double tap, what I meant was that it hit Fuqua and then went to Franco, and it would have been illegal. And I see Dan Rooney standing with McNally, and they're on a phone, and they had to wind the phone, and they were calling down to the field. And I knew that Danny had gotten there first, and uh, there was nothing we were going to do to prevent it. And uh, it's one of the great moments in... Uh, National Football League history. It's not a great moment in Raider history, but uh, if you judge it that way, fine. But uh, I just thought uh, it was a mistake, but it was one of those things. It was an honest, I guess it was an honest mistake, and uh, Fuqua knows he hit it, and it should have been our game. Talking about Raider history, here are some other players that I just want to end uh, Bo Jackson. Evaluation of, of both. Truly, uh, truly great player, great athlete. I'm proud that he's a part of the Raider organization, and I'm proud that he's one of the first players, or the first player, of the last 50 years, let's say, to play boat sports and do him great. And I think he'll even get better at boat sports as time goes on. And uh, I encourage him to do boat sports, and I think for the Raiders, if we knew every year. After the first four games of the season or after the first six at the trading deadline in the National Football League, you could get one of the greatest players for nothing to help your team. It's tremendous, and that's what we do. And that's the way I looked at Bo Jackson. It's one of those uh, uh, risks that an organization has to take from time to time. You have to put up. You have to have the resources to do it. 
and get great players in your organization. There's nothing like it to have them pass through and wear those colors, silver and black. And I still predict that uh, in the near future, just like he's done in the past, he's starting to come on. He's starting to learn what we're doing and all. We're starting to learn him. You know, you have to know him. Uh, he'll be making bigger and greater contributions to the Raiders. What about the, the dichotomy between the two sports, Al? I mean, there are people that would say that it's detracting from both both abilities to do to, to play football and the baseball. What what is what, what's your reply to those to that, to that? That's an obvious observation that uh, a five-year-old could do. That if you have to do both sports, it might take away from one. That isn't the idea of this exercise. The idea is to encourage Bo to do both great. And even though there might be a negative or two, there are so many positives that the negatives just fall by the wayside as far as I'm concerned. I, I know all the people who make these predictions for everyone in life, but Bo, uh, I kind of had that same problem personally. Uh, Bo is a maverick. He uh, goes to his own team, but he's been a team player. Uh, he's been cooperative. He's done everything asked of him, and that's all you can ask uh, of the player. I'm not, I'm not here to... Uh, uh, I think the problem in our society is that there are a lot of people who don't want them to do both. For some reason or other, their culture has dictated that you can't do both. And here's a guy going against what they've been taught who can do both. Let him do it. Let's get behind him. It would be great for America to have someone that we could look up to that could do both. There's nothing wrong. No one's going to come along to do it uh, uh, very much uh, in, in, in the near future. So let's have one guy do it. But uh, look, we've all gone through life with people telling us we can't do something or we shouldn't do something or it's wrong. He's not breaking any law. He's just doing what his heart dictates and he has great athletic ability to do it and we ought to let him do it. Ah, uh, the great and eventually tragic story of Bo Jackson. When this interview was conducted in 1989, Bo had just completed his third season in the NFL, and it appeared he was destined for a Hall of Fame career in two sports. Well, we all know it ended the next year with a hip injury that cut short his football career. But isn't it enlightening listening to Davis talk about his attitude toward Bo? In fact, a few years later, when Deion Sanders attempted to play both sports there was much more of a backlash, at least from the Atlanta Braves. But Al Davis, he saw a bigger picture for both his team, for Bo, and really for the entire sports world. When we come back, we'll hear Al Davis on John Madden, Pete Rozelle, a story that may actually surprise you, and his legacy. Stay tuned. You go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day. And smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA Sixth Man of the Year, elite bucket getter. Let's please welcome Jamal Crawford to Point Game, King of the Court one-on-one tournament. If they had it back in your prime, do you think he could have took it all? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I could have took it all, but I think I would have shocked a lot of people. I think Kobe and everybody in their prime, Kobe would win a one-on-one contest. 
Yeah, I, yeah, because you got to think, Love he's it. gonna guard. He don't care about guarding. He's gonna guard. He's gonna exactly. guard. Like you see him in the Olympics, exactly. he's gonna guard. And then on I'm top of it, like that, see that. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Cassell to Point Game. I remember you came out from crying tears. <laughs> crying tears. I mean, he was in a culture shock. And then his, he's going to withdraw us about winning. Remember what I told you? I said, I said, OG, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college? Because it ain't it. <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colin Coward from The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big, small, indoor, outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled pros to get the job done well. Listen, I've got a couple of things in a bathroom in my house. Got to get it fixed. I don't have time, and I'm not good at it. Angie is. In just a few taps in the Angie app or clicks on the site, you can have Angie tackle your home service project start to finish. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects really easy. Renters, you can use Angie, too, for moving, installations, or cleaning. Angie can even help with extremely specific projects. Just tell them what you need, and Angie will find the right solution for you. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. Welcome back to Tales from the Vault. There always seem to be two names associated with Al Davis for vastly different reasons, John Madden and Pete Rozelle. Dating back to the 1960s, suffice it to say in a gross understatement that Davis and Rozelle had a long-standing feud. They were two alpha males who, despite their rivalry, set the stage for the NFL to truly become America's game. Then, of course, in 1969, Davis promoted 32-year-old John Madden from linebacker's coach to head coach. Now, Al knew something about cultivating young head coaches, considering that he was the youngest head coach general manager in NFL history with the Raiders back in 1963. For the 10 years under John Madden, the Raiders appeared in six AFC Championship games and won the Super Bowl in 1976. He was the perfect fit for the Al Davis Raiders. Why, what, what was John Madden's greatest strength, Al, as a coach? What were the things about him that, 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 that made him so successful? I, I don't think it was any individual thing. I think he was a great coach. I think he was one of the greatest coaches of our time. And he should be perceived that way. And I thought he should have been in the Hall of Fame. Uh, in his 10 years as a head coach, he's won over 100 games more than any other coach. He has the highest winning percentage of any other coach in professional football. And he should be in the Hall of Fame. But the tough part about working for the Raiders is, for some reason or other, there's an echelon of press that goes against anything that represents silver and black or Raiders. And uh, he had a way. He understood defense. He learned in the first few years as a head coach the passing game. He adjusted very well. He knew the players in the league. He uh, believed in matchups. He understood matchups. He understood players, their lives, and he got them to play. But most of all, it was a way of life for him. 
He committed himself to it totally. I know that we used to sit up nights. All we ever did was football. We were like kids. We'd get together uh, in, in the late afternoon in the off season, sit around the office and just talk football like we were in the old candy store or, or something on the corner. And uh, uh, we, we, we just lived our life. And this was his dream, to be a head coach. He knew he didn't want to do it forever. And he was so successful at it that after 10 years, he had some physical problems, but he got out and he's successful at what he's doing now. He's a great teacher. And just the way he is on the television, he's adjusted a little. And uh, he's just, he was just great. He could win. And unfortunately, you have to win before you're considered great. And he could win. And he did win. What do you look back on the decade of the, of the 80s? What to you are the significant achievements or events uh, of the 80s? Not necessarily for you personally, but for the overall, the National Football League? Well, there are a lot of negative ones, unfortunately. A lot of things that came up that we have to deal with that I'm not sure we've dealt with. And that would be the collective bargaining agreement with the players, the drug problem, uh, the resignation of the commissioner, all the lawsuits that we, the league lost in court that fortunately the Raiders won. Uh, but I also look upon the 80s as the uh, growth of a lot of great players and a lot of great organizations that came to the forefront, certainly. Uh, Bill Walsh took the 49ers to the forefront, and the Redskins came back. And then uh, still that this game and the fans love toughness as the Bears personified. And then, of course, the contribution of the Raiders, uh, winning a Super Bowl in Oakland, winning a Super Bowl in Los Angeles, and... Uh, uh, but the 80s aren't over yet. We still got 89, still got a chance. What about the Pete Rozelle when he resigned? Yeah, oh, sure. That. Could you sure. talk about that? Yeah. Let's go over that. Sure, uh, you know, Pete, Pete Rozelle and Al Davis have been adversaries for many years, ever since I became commissioner of the American Football League, and we think forced a merger. And uh, since that time, Pete and I have been adversaries, and uh, uh, we had gone through all this fighting in these court cases through the 80s. It was vicious. But yet, uh, that particular day, Palm Springs, 1989, as we sat there, uh, time is a great healer of wounds. And uh, we had just uh, uh, been talking about settlement of the case between the Raiders and uh, the National Football League. And Pete got up in the afternoon, and we came back from lunch and start talking in a very funny way and then let us know that he was resigning. And emotionally, uh, I was greatly concerned about his health. He started to tear, cry, and he stood up and he started to go out to see the press. And uh, as he started walking out of the room, he was walking by the area where I was sitting at uh, the executive committee meeting. He was speaking to the entire executive committee of 28 owners. and. Uh, our eyes just made contact. And so I stopped walking toward him and he redirected and stopped walking toward me and we embraced. And I just said, uh, I'm sorry, I hope to God everything is okay. I was greatly concerned about him. And uh, as I said to you, when we're competitors out there on the field or anywhere, I wanna win. But once you get off that playing field, whether it be in public school or high school or anywhere, there is something about life or death and health that you have to have compassion for. And I was greatly concerned about him. 
And uh, he had given his life to professional football, just like I have. And uh, I wished him well, and I hope to God uh, that uh, everything goes well for him in the future. And uh, uh, I thought it was normal for men to embrace at a time like that. What is it about the, the, the Raiders yourself that's created this this tremendous bond of loyalty to guys that are playing now that 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 come back that, that talk about the silver and black and like Matusak was here and was going to Germany and he wanted three or four Raiders ja uh, jackets to take with him. I mean, what? Did, why? How has that been created or how have you established that? Well, when I started it, I, I told you that uh, I wanted it to be different. I wanted the Raiders to be different. I wanted when a guy played for the Raiders and he wore what I call the fame colors of silver and black, that it would be a part of him the rest of his life, that he would think silver and black, like some big college used to be when we were kids, like Notre Dame used to be along those lines. And uh, we've been able to do it. And uh, as I told you before, uh, I realize that all the great players, and even those who weren't great, who made a contribution to the Raiders, who came before, in whose glory we all share, and those who are going to come on in the future, all made this great contribution. And so I, I feel that there's a debt that we owe to them, and we can never forget that debt, and that, that there's more to life. I realize this. In my culture, you have to win. There, there, there is no substitute. But I also realize that there's more to life than just winning. There's, there's a relationship among men among families, among people, and I want them to always feel that they belong to this organization, that, that there's a certain pride, there's a certain poise, and I know it sounds corny somewhere else, but, but it's something I believe in, and it's something that I want to happen, and, and I'm very thankful that it has happened. I, I want, I can't tell you that I might see John Madden only three times a year, but there's a certain relationship there, a friendliness, like I see him every day and uh, know him, and he knows how I think, and we both believe in the same things, and I just would want this organization to carry on forever that way, if it's at all possible. The last question, and we're wrapped up, the legacy that you would want to leave when, when you're, if you ever retire from the game, when you're no longer part of the game, and, and your name is mentioned, I mean, what are the things that when somebody says uh, Al Davis and people are talking, and uh, what would you want them to say, or what would, your what would you want your legacy to be? Well, I wouldn't want my legacy to be, I would want it to be associated with the greatest organization in professional sports, the Raiders, a standard of excellence by which all other organizations could be measured. And then if you asked who started the Raiders and who guided it and who directed it, along with the great help of uh, people like John Madden and Tom Flores, who are my friends, and all the great players, and Al Locasal, and my partners who were limited partners with the Raiders. Uh, that's what I would want. I would, uh, I, I, would, I would think that that would be a great legacy if the Raiders could end up as the greatest organization in professional sports and continue that, and that uh, I would be associated with the, the individual who started it and uh, who uh, set the guidelines and, as I said, the standard of excellence by which all others could be measured. Al Davis's legacy can be measured in many ways, but loyalty has to be a top criteria. And maybe that's best exemplified by the number of Hall of Fame players whom Al presented when they were inducted. For the record, that number is nine, more than anyone else. Lance Allworth, 
Jim Otto, George Blanda, Willie Brown, Gene Upshaw, Fred Belitnikoff, Art Shell, Ted Hendricks, and John Madden. And three years after this interview was conducted, Madden presented Davis at his Hall of Fame induction in 1992. I can't imagine ending on a stronger interview, and this is it for Tales from the Vault. 20 episodes just flew by. In fact, if you missed any, please go back and listen. This has truly been a passion project for me. And, and you know how we talked about the flame lit at Raiders Stadium? Well, I hope that this podcast keeps alive the brilliance of Steve Sable. His fearlessness to ask any question, delve into any subject, his humor and incredible inquisitiveness, the trust he nurtured with NFL luminaries, which allowed them to open up in previously unheard of ways, as we saw with Al Davis talking about his beloved wife. Make no mistake, Steve was the leader and the visionary of NFL films, and no hyperbole is hugely responsible for the success of the league to this day. This September marks a decade since Steve tragically died of brain cancer at only 69. I thank you for listening and supporting this podcast and the legacy of Stephen Douglas Sable. With tremendous gratitude to my amazing producer, Chip Swain, and for all the terrific, talented, and dedicated folks at NFL Films, I'm Andrea Kramer. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.